All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this scripture that we get to consider today, and I pray that you give us insight into all these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, are you guys fared out yet? <laughs> Everybody just walked in looking tired today, right? Like, it is, uh, it is a thing, right? Uh, we had a blast there this last week, and I, it's so fun to be uh, part of a smaller community um, they didn't have stuff like that in Chicago, right? And I would never run into people even if they did have stuff like that in Chicago, but I ran into a number of you at the fair. A joy for us to, to be part of the community is great. Um, just want to remind you of something. Uh, today is a communion Sunday, so make sure as you walked in, you grab the elements in the back. If, if you haven't done that, uh, go ahead and excuse yourself and grab those uh, little communion cups because we'll be celebrating that uh, ordinance a little bit later on. And for those of you online as well, make sure you're prepared for that time as we approach it at the end of the message, and uh, we'd love to have you participate in that way. Um, so today, uh, just by way of introduction, I just want to let you know that this sermon is a, a revisitation and a remix of a sermon that was preached back on Mother's Day, okay? And uh, so a remix, for those of you that like music, right? a, mu- a remix is a sound recording uh, that has been edited or reworked a little bit, reworked a little bit to sound different from the original song. Um, it's not a cover, it's a remix, okay? A remix differs in that it uses the original recording, and it's not just a recreation of it. So, we're actually going to preach some of the identical same words that were preached back in Mother's Day, and I'll tell you why in a second. If you've ever been to a group exercise class or a cycling class, then you know what I'm talking about when I say remix, Okay? Those songs that they play there are all horrible renditions of remixes, okay? Basically, all they do is add a pulsing 4-4 beat and some annoying multi-tone simulator and a whole bunch of reverb that makes you want to go faster and faster, right? Uh, Probably so that you get the class done sooner, right? But it's like this kind of pump-up music. Um, If you don't believe me, I want to demonstrate for one moment what a remix is, okay? So Beethoven's fifth right, is one of the best known compositions of classical music in the world, right? It's often referred to um, as the cornerstone of Western music. It's one of the most important works of all time. This is the original Beethoven's Fifth. We'll listen to about 45 seconds of it. It, uh, you've heard the song before, right? Right? That, that composer, the, the conductor, was like doing his thing, man. It's, it's beautiful. Um, Beethoven's Fifth is one of the best-known compositions. It's complex. It's haunting. It's firm. It's beautiful. 
Uh, it's interesting because what's not beautiful is if you look up pictures of Ludwig van Beethoven on Google, right? If you look it up, you're going to be hard-pressed to find any pictures of him smiling. Um, and the pictures of him are mostly unflattering. He looks actually really, really mad. And I think the person drawing him must have always caught him in a bad mood. It's like the artist came in right after Beethoven had a premonition that someone would eventually take one of his works of art and do something like this to it. This is the remixed version. Here we go. thinks they can climb a mountain and listen to that music, right? Yeah, exercise class. Um, <laughs> hopefully that gives you a little bit of get up and go, right? That's what the, the point of the remix version is. But after a while, it feels like someone's repeatedly hitting your eardrum with a mallet, right? It's like, good, good, good. Well, what I'm hoping is that that won't be your experience today, okay? So hopefully the first time we listen to the sermon, um, it was a beautiful rendition, and hopefully we're going to add to it today. We're going to add something that is actually even more beautiful. Today we're going to revisit and remix a former sermon, and we talked about God's love on Mother's Day, and the focus of half of that sermon to be culturally relevant for the day is on the parental nature of God. He reveals himself primarily as a father in Scripture, but there's also a number of times in Scripture where he likens himself to the nurturing and loving care to that of a mother. And so we spent half of our time looking at that to be relevant for the day. So today, there's going to be some parts of the sermon that will be identical in content to that sermon, but it's going to sound a little bit different because we're going to add something to it. And we want to revisit and remix that sermon on God's love and add to the mixture something that will hopefully make the sermon better than the original. And I'm not doing this because I'm lazy. I'm doing this because I want to make sure that we're accurate and thorough in our discussion of the attribute of God's love. In that last sermon, we just assumed that the phrase, God is love, is true. It certainly is true, but I want to add something to the remixed version of the sermon that will show that the phrase, God is love, is not just to be devotionally believed because we think it sounds good, but it actually has to be logically and reasonably validated by the scriptures themselves and by reason, and that is what we're going to do today. What I want to show you today is that the phrase, God is love, does not make any sense Unless God eternally exists as the triune God. Without the Trinity, God's love as well as the whole of Christian teaching doesn't work. So let's pray and ask God's blessing as we look at this sermon once again. God, we want to make sure that we add something to this component of your love that makes sense to us logically and reasonably. So that it's not just something that we just hold on to loosely and just hope that is true, but we can see that it is rock-solid bedrock truth of our faith, that without the Trinity, God's love as a whole and the Christian of teaching doesn't work. So God, I pray that you'd open up our eyes to see wonderful things here today in this sermon. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so let's start to remix this thing. First of all, we want to say God is love. 
We saw it in the passage of scripture that Ange read to us. 1 John 4, 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. In the last sermon, we tried to unpack what this somewhat elusive reality means. God is love. And we actually see it multiple times in the Bible. If you go forward in 1 John 4, 16, you see it again. So we have come to know and to believe that the love of God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And this isn't just the idea in the Apostle John's mind. We see it as Paul writes to the Corinthians as well. It's actually the very last things that he says to the Corinthians in chapter 13. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. There was a, there's a problem within the Corinthian church, but why don't you aim to restore that problem, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So we see that God is love and that God is the God of love. Love exists in the world, according to the biblical authors, because God exists. Love finds its source in him. And in that sermon, I mentioned that the world is very confused as to what love is these days. To love something in our current culture means just to be completely hands-off, just let people do whatever they want to do, whatever's right in their own eyes, irregardless of what they are identifying with or doing is in accordance with the way that the world was designed in the first place. Just let people love, right? That's just hands-off. But true love, true love isn't letting people do whatever they want to do. True love is actually to hate sin because sin is what separated us. That from which is true love, God himself. So we need to speak the truth in love. God is love. And I mentioned that I'd always hesitated saying that I understand what this meant. You know, it kind of seems kind of cryptic, right? Maybe I'm just slow of learning, but the meaning of this phrase is rather cryptic and vague and ambiguous. God is love. What does that mean? What might it mean? Does anybody remember the illustration that I shared to help us grasp the wonderful reality? Anybody remember back to Mother's Day? God is love. I said it made me think about this. Well, what what do I mean when I say Sean is tired? Okay? Some of you know me a lot better than others, and so there's obvious tells that I have when I'm experiencing exhaustion, right? I get a droopy, lazy eye. <laughs> I might yawn. I might try to fight off a yawn while trying to look like I'm paying attention, like some of you look right now, right? <laughs> After a fair week, I don't doubt it, right? You actually might see me reposition my body to a more relaxed position. You might even see me close my eyes, and if you stick around long enough, You'll probably hear me snore. And the reason why you might experience all those things is because Sean is tired. My tiredness has been demonstrated to you through the droopy eye, through the repositioning, through the yawning, right? So when John says that God is love, we can begin to conjure up images in our minds as to what that means. Love is shown to others. And we took a little bit of time to look at the different words that the biblical authors have at their disposal to communicate the different variations and the ideas of love. And that won't be part of the remix today, but what we will remind ourselves of is how we defined agape. Because agape is the word that we saw in the past that Ange read to us. 
It's a divine love that's characterized by sacrifice and the pursuit of another person's good. You should have seen it all over in the musical worship today. The sacrifice and the pursuit of another person's good was all over the place in the songs we sang today. It's all over the place in the scriptures. The word John uses in our text was read, that was read today is agape. It's the unconditional love of the Father that has been made manifest to us by means of his Son. So when John says God is love, what he means by that is God is disposed to be self-giving for the good of others. It is actually in his very nature to seek after the well-being of others. He is the one who has manifested his love for us when he gave himself to us and for us. The love of God has been clearly demonstrated to us. And so we talked about God's self-giving love has been clearly demonstrated. He has clearly demonstrated his love by giving his son for us. Garrett and Elaine were talking about Awana. One of the first verses you're going to learn in Awana is John 3.16, so basic, but God so loved the world, well, how would he do Well, he demonstrated it that he gave his son. His love was demonstrated by the willingness to, to be predisposed to give of himself for our benefit, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He has clearly demonstrated his love for us that while we were still his enemies, the son was given for us. Did, did that word pop off the, pay, or off the screen to you? Once your enemy, but now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Romans 5, 8, look at this. It says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't like clean up your act and then maybe I'll give myself to you. No, it was like, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And then he ups the ante for if while we were enemies, whoa, not just sinners, but enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. This is an incredible claim. Paul calls us all out and says, you're sinners and your enemies. This is incredible. Paul says that you and I are sinners and enemies. An enemy is somebody who is actively opposed to and hostile towards somebody. Paul says that you and I were hostile, villainous people, murderous assassins of God. And Jesus was given for us that when we were that way, while we were still enemies... When our sin was yelling out and crying out, crucify him, what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. His love has been clearly demonstrated to us by taking our place on the cross. And so John continues on in John, 1 John 4.10. It says, in this is love. What is love? Well, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means wrath-averting sacrifice. There's a lightning bolt of God's just justice that had our name on it. 
and it was sent from the thunder clouds of heaven, and Jesus stepped in front, and he took it all in, absorbing all of its fervent heat, and it killed him. And then when we look at that sacrifice, when we see what he has done, and then we remember what he said in John 15, 13, it's always been clearly demonstrated to us, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He has clearly demonstrated his love by laying down his life for us. And so now positionally speaking, we're no longer sinners and enemies, and we haven't just been made his purchased servants. He says, look, you're my friends. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Lover of my soul, I want to live for you, is what we sang. And we, after receiving this extravagant love, we seek to be self-giving towards others for their benefit because that's what's happened to us by our God. And when we do that, when we put that into practice, we will find that our reward in heaven will be great because we will have fulfilled our calling to be like the God who is called the God of love. If you want to know, like, am I really following Christ, ask yourself that diagnostic question. How self-giving am I of myself to other people for their benefit solely? That's a good diagnostic. So now as we approach the ordinance of communion and take two elements that represent the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, we'll know more fully what his sacrifice points to, and that's his self-giving love for us. So, that's love. Nothing really new so far. Not much new has been added that has already been said. But now I want to show you that God can't be love unless he exists as a triunity. As a being who is Trinitarian in nature. Have you ever wondered what God was doing before the creation of the world? You know, there's debate on how old the earth is. And I suppose that Debate will rage on and on until kingdom come. But right now, I don't really want to focus on when the universe was spoken into existence. I want to try to get a lead on what God was doing before all this came into being. Right? I don't really care about when it came. I'm wondering, like, what was God doing before that? Because he obviously preceded it. And thankfully, as we search the scriptures, we can find out exactly what God was doing. When we listen to the prayer of Jesus in the upper room, we get the answer. Listen to this. This should be eye-opening to you and revolutionary for the way you live your life. John 17, 24, Jesus is praying, and this is what he says. Father, I desire that they also, the disciples and those that would believe through their testimony, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me why? Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before time existed, we get a glimpse from Jesus' prayer what was happening. As we listen to our Savior's prayer, we get a glimpse as to what was happening before all this was spoken into existence. And what was happening was this. There was a father who is eternally loving his son and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
God existed before the rest of existence, and love was flowing from son to father, from father to son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we will see this evidence in a few moments as we look at the baptism of Jesus in a moment. Now, I get it. The Trinity is hard to comprehend, (laughs) and we struggle with wrapping our minds around it. But although it's a concept that's mathematically inaccessible to us, and it's impossible really to illustrate it concretely in the reality that we live in, it does not mean that we can't understand its meaning. I don't want us to get too caught up in the mystery of the Trinity. Sometimes when we talk about the Trinity, we say, oh, it's the Trinity. It's such a mystery. Yes, it is a mystery, but don't just leave it at that. Don't get too caught up in the mystery that you forget about the meaning God cannot be love if there is no object to demonstrate that love to. The doctrine of the triunity of God is not just some for some egg-headed theologians. It's really for all of us, normal people as well. So what do we know about the Trinity? Well, first of all, God eternally exists as a triunity of love. This makes Christianity very unique. God, the three-in-one, is strictly a Christian doctrine that teaches God is a unity of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the word Trinity does not occur in any Bible text. However, the scriptures as a whole help direct us to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And one of the primary biblical texts to consider while studying the doctrine of the Trinity is found in Deuteronomy 6.4. In the Shema of Israel, God is truly one. Look, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's really important when we start talking about the Trinity that we're not talking about three different gods. The scripture does not teach polytheism, multiple deities. There is only one God, but there are three identities ascribed to that one divinity. And we can see that these three identities in the Godhead are all equally divine in the scriptures. So I want to just give you a few passages for your consideration. And we could go to a whole bunch of them, but this isn't like an ordination final or anything like that. Just just a couple of them for your consideration as you mull over this, this week. The biblical authors reveal that God the Father is truly God. Look at it in Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is Father, and the Father is God, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Later on in Ephesians 1, we see this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So we see that God the Father is indeed God. The biblical authors reveal that God the Father is truly God, but the biblical authors also hold to the divine status of Jesus. The author of Hebrews writes this, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. He's equating Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, to be God as well. Your throne is forever and ever, and the scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Colossians 1.16, maybe one of my personal favorites, for by him, in speaking of Jesus, for by him all things were created. So the Son was active agent in creation, To be an active agent in creation means you have to precede it. You're before that. That means you are God. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and not only that, but for him. He, the Son, is God. So we got God the Father God, God the Son God. And the biblical authors identify that the Holy Spirit is God as well. Consider a couple of these, Romans 8, 13 through 14. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the what? Spirit of God are sons of God, children of God. The Holy Spirit is God in Paul's mind. And the author of Hebrews, once again, how much war will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, if the Spirit is eternal, and we know that God as being is eternal, then the Spirit must be God as well. Offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If you don't think the Holy Spirit is God, ask Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. That's a little Bible joke for you, right? Read it if you, haven't, if you don't know the punchline. With each person referred to as God in the scriptures, the biblical authors teach that there's a plurality in the Godhead. God is triune. And there's also passages in which all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in the same context. And so the Trinity is revealed explicitly, clearly, throughout the duration of the New Testament. There's a whole bunch of passages that are written in your sermon notes, and we're not going to get to all of them, but you look them up later. But in, that, in all those passages, what you're going to see is those texts actually say the word Trinity without actually saying the word Trinity. It's like the buzzword, don't say Trinity, but here's all the explicit evidence found in these short verses. We actually see this in the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry at his baptism, Matthew 3, chapter, chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, so we got the second person of the Trinity Immediately he went up out from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So you got the third person of the Trinity, and behold, a voice from heaven. Well, whose voice? It was God the Father's voice, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So here we get the idea of the, de- of the doctrine of the Trinity right here. There's God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father, all at one time in one place, working in specific ways and accomplishing the goal of Jesus being publicly baptized to initiate his public ministry. And then at the very end of his public ministry, while commissioning his disciples, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, what? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, Peter's first apostolic sermon ever preached, Peter referenced the three distinct members of the Trinity and their unique roles within the Godhead. So at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, to the very end of Jesus' ministry, to the very beginning of apostolic ministry, what we see is the Trinity. And there's a final blessing that was given to the Corinthians by the Apostle Paul, and he writes this, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So we have a triune God, but what does that mean? What's the big deal with that, right? Now we can kind of quote Bible verses to one another and say, well, yeah, we think, but but what does it mean, right? 
Well, follow the logic here as we close the sermon. One, if we have defined love right with our definition, which is this, self-giving for the benefit of others, which if you read the scriptures, that's what it is. And two, if we notice that in the Godhead, that love was eternally existing before we were even part of the picture, then it stands to reason that three, us being brought into existence was the overflow of that loving relationship. Why is that important? Well, since that is the case, what that tells us is that God did not create us out of some sort of insufficiency in himself. Rather, we were the result of his contented pleasure. So that means the way that he relates to us is by sheer grace. This is what makes the God of the Bible different from all other lowercase gods in all the other world religions. You won't see a contented, overflowing Trinity God anywhere else. God did not create us out of some sort of internal loneliness. God did not create us because he needed some sort of workforce to accomplish his plans in the universe. He's not some isolated, lonely God that needs anything. He's actually not dependent on anything to fill him up. He created us out of the overflow of his delight and his enjoyment of himself. And so you get the phrase, for our joy and for his glory, God made me and you. He created us out of the overflow of his delight and enjoyment. He doesn't need you, but he's pleased to create you and me. And he didn't just create us and then watch us fall short of his standards and ultimately dethrone him as the shot caller of our lives, and then we reject him and slaughter his son. So that by means of that self-giving, loving sacrifice of the Son of God, we can have the ability of the Holy Spirit to be put inside of us for adoption as his very own sons and daughters to cry out, Abba, Father, by means of that indwelling Spirit who sealed us for the day of redemption. He doesn't need to do that, but he does that. And so all of a sudden, the Trinity is not some theological mystery that we wrongly think that we can live without. In light of all this, the doctrine of the Trinitarian nature of God is something that we desperately cling to. It carries us throughout our days. God is love because God is triune. Love, in order to be real, needs to be expressed. And it existed in the Godhead from eternity past, and it overflowed in the creation. And then it overflowed in a costly way on Calvary's mountain. And then it cascaded down the cross of Christ and it covered us and cleansed us from our cold and calloused hearts in their sinful state. And it was poured out on us when we first believed. And it was poured out into us by the person of the Holy Spirit who himself is God. And he takes up residence within us. And when we see that, what we know for certain is that the love of God has been expressed to us. 
Because dwelling within us is a deposit for greater things to come for those who believe. So yes, it is hard to understand. I get it. But don't miss out on the meaning of the mystery of the Trinity. God is the most capable being in the universe to show love to you personally. That's what it means. Receive it from him. He's actually really, really good at it. And he's been doing it for a long, long time. Let's pray. God, this, um, this sermon here has been remixed and reworked a little bit because we want to take time to be thorough in thinking about how you specifically have loved us. And the source of that love is the overflowing delight and enjoyment of yourself even before we were part of the scene. So that means the way that you relate to us is by sheer grace, by being disposed to be self-giving for the benefit of others. And God, as we approach this ordinance, that's exactly what we are going to be rehearsing the means by which we are saved, by taking this little wafer and by taking the cup and its contents and being reminded of the body and the blood of Jesus being poured out for us, love literally being poured out for us that was sourced in eternity past. God, I pray that you give us new insight and new meaning into this symbol of our church practice here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.